Thank you, Jeff and praise team. Appreciate you leading us in worship this morning. It's good to be with you. Welcome to the chapel. If you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you and let you know that we're certainly glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. And uh, if this is your first Sunday or maybe you've been visiting a couple of Sundays in a row, we would encourage you to do this. Stick six with us. Each local church has its own DNA. Each local church has its own heartbeat, so to speak. And so we would encourage you to stick with us. Get to know us a little bit and then make a decision uh, with God's help if the chapel might not be a place for you to worship long term. And we pray, pray that it is and will be. We pray that you'll be edified as uh, you worship with us and as we open God's Word together. With that being said, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning. This morning we'll be looking at one verse, 20 verses last week. We'll look at one verse this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We ended our study last week of the first 20 chapters of Mark 5, and we ended with a demon-possessed man, a once demon-possessed man, who had been changed. No longer did he wonder about the tombs, terrorized and terrorizing. Jesus had tamed his sin and his madness. Jesus did what no one else could do, namely, change this man's heart. He changed it from the inside out. Jesus had mercy on him. You remember Jesus' parting words to that man? I know it's been 168 hours since we assembled here last, but do you remember Jesus' parting words to that once demon-possessed man? You don't need to turn there, but Mark chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Mark writes, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, past tense, with the demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Here's the reality, friends. I don't know that I said this in exactly the same language last week, but you and I are the man of the tombs. In one way or another, we are this man. We are this man. If you haven't come to know Christ personally, then you, like this man was, are still bound in your shackles of sin. But if you know Christ, if he's tamed your sin and your madness with his redemptive grace, then we are now to live differently because we've been shown mercy. And a part of this is that we're to go tell it on the mountain, right? Is this not what Jesus told this once demon-possessed man? He said, go and tell all your friends. If it, if it has a heartbeat, preach the gospel to it. Go tell all your friends how the Lord has had mercy on you. Romans 12, verse 1, our text for this morning, is one of many texts that tell us how we, undeserving sinners, saved by God's lavish grace, should now live as a result of that lavish mercy and grace. Paul begins by telling us that he wants our bodies, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he'll continue in Verse 2, which is a sermon or a message for a later time, but he'll continue in verse 2 to tell us that God wants our mind and he wants our wills. You see, we're called to yield or to present our bodies, our minds, and our wills to God as instruments of righteousness. Why? Because of his mercy on us. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability to stand, I would encourage you to do so. 
As we turn our attention to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. May the Lord bless His word. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention to the first phrase of verse 1 this morning. That being, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If you're taking notes this morning, number one on your outline is this. We offer ourselves, namely our bodies, to God because of His mercy. We offer our bodies, ourselves to God, because of His mercy. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The first thing I want you to notice this is this. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. Now keep in mind, Paul was an apostle. And apostleship carried with it authority. But Paul didn't use his authority to command the Romans. Rather, he used the language of grace. He said, I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we work our way through Romans 12, verse 1, that the one who is speaking to us, the Apostle Paul, he's speaking to us as a brother. He's speaking to us as our brother in Christ. And he says, I appeal to you. Not I command you, though he could have used that language. I appeal to you as a brother. That's the language of grace. Paul wrote this in Philemon chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. But he said this, he said, Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is right, or to command you to do what is required, yet, he says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Though I could command you, I appeal to you. I prefer in love to appeal to you. It's exactly what we see taking place here at the opening of our text. Now, when an appeal is made, when you appeal You typically appeal to something or you appeal on the basis of something. Paul tells us what the basis of his appeal is when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, and here's the basis, by the mercies of God. You see, the basis or the undercurrent of Paul's coming argument is that we have in Christ been the recipients of lavish mercies. Notice that Paul uses the plural there, by the way, mercies. Not mercy, but mercies. That was a Hebraism, and it points to God's numerous or His lavish mercies displayed towards us in Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. What is mercy? What is mercy? If I asked you to turn your bulletin over this morning, though you don't have any white space to write a definition, but if I asked you to turn your bulletin over this morning and to write the definition of mercy, what would you pin? What would you write? How would you define it? Mercy. It's a common theological term that we use, and it has massive implications on our lives. But what does it mean? Mercy. Mercy. We commonly define mercy as God withholding that which we rightly deserve. If grace is God giving us that which we don't deserve, then mercy is God withholding that which we rightfully do deserve, namely God's justice, His righteous wrath as a result of our sin. God withholds that, but yet we 
rightfully deserve it. That's mercy. Mercy. God has shown us favor, kindness, compassion, and yet all the time we were undeserving. All we deserve is exclusion from the faintest particle of God's goodness. We don't, we don't deserve to be recipients of God's grace. We deserve to be shut out from God's grace. We deserve the death and condemnation that our sin has rightfully earned. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. That, by the way, comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And it won't be too long before we're there. We'll begin our just about a year-long exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians next Sunday would encourage you to be with us. Pray for me as I continue to prepare for those messages. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. That is mercy. That is mercy. Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 Probably a familiar text to you. Some of you may have it in vinyl letters uh, somewhere on a wall in your house, or maybe it's on a calendar in your home somewhere, or maybe you have it memorized. But Jeremiah, in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, he reminds us that God's mercies never fail and they never come to an end. And then you have verse 23, Lamentations 3.23. You know what that says? And his mercies are new with what? With the morning. His mercies are new. They're fresh with the morning. God is merciful towards us, undeserving sinners. Paul is appealing to us. He's coming to us as a brother. And he's going to tell us how we ought to live as recipients of God's lavish mercy. And we see mercy in Many, many ways, but if we distilled it down to its foundation, the mercy of God. You can write this down if you're taking notes. This is A on your outline. You were bought with a price. You want to know what mercy looks like? It looks like being bought with a price, being reconciled, being redeemed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, for you were bought with a price. And then he goes on and he says, so, or as a result of that, glorify God with your bodies. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God with your bodies. That's just another way of saying, I appeal to you, brothers, on the basis of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. What were you bought with? Be on your outline. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. You were bought, if you know Jesus, with nothing less than his precious blood. Peter wrote it this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not with things that fade in value, not with things that diminish in value, not with things that rot, rust, or collect dust, but with the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that has more significance. There's nothing else that has more worth. There's nothing else that has more value save the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's if we know Christ, what we have been pardoned by. The precious blood of Christ. You were bought with a price. What is the price? The price was the precious blood of Christ. Now, in light of that, here's C on your outline. Mercy, then, is to be the motivation for worship. Mercy and grace 
ought to be the motivation for worship. Kent Hughes, a pastor and commentator, reminds us this. He says, there is scarcely anything more important than building our commitment, or to building our commitment, than an increasing understanding of the greatness of God and His mercies to us. There's nothing more important to building our commitment to Christ than a growing understanding of His greatness and His mercy displayed towards us. Mercy is the motivation for a life of worship. And that's not just some cute quip or cute phrase. That's that's biblical. Mercy is the motivation for worship. Where do we get that? We get that from Titus chapter 2, as well as a plethora of other texts. Paul writes this, he says, For the grace of God has appeared. Well, let's pause right there. The grace of God has appeared. Well, the grace of God is not some intangible thing. The grace of God comes to us in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he says the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared. And then he goes on. uh, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that grace, he says, trains us to renounce or to say no to all ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What is it? What is it that compels me to live godly, self-controlled, upright in this present age? The grace of God has appeared. It's His mercy. Mercy is the motivation for a life of worship. And so the question I have for you this morning is this. Have you tasted His mercy? Have you tasted His mercy? If not, the first thing that you need to do is to come to the fountain and to drink there. You know, I'm reminded of the text in the Old Testament where God says this through the prophet. He says, well, he says, come, buy bread, buy milk without cost and without price. Why will you spend your life or why will you give your life for that which does not satisfy? Come, come. That's, that's the gospel call. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, come, come. And taste of his mercy and of his grace. Number two, if you're taking notes, is this. We offer ourselves, namely our bodies, to God as a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves to Him because of His mercy. Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you, on the basis of the mercies of God, so we offer ourselves to God because of His mercy, but we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Look at the second phrase. In verse 1, Paul says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You see, the first thing that we've got to be reminded of before we look at the particulars of our devotion to Christ is that the Christian life is a life of death. The Christian life, friends, is a life of death. I mean, Jesus said it this way in Luke 9, 23. He said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I mean, what Jesus was saying there is if you want to follow me, you must die. And I was the model. I was the exemplar of that. The Christian life is a life of death. You know, I oftentimes think as I'm around town in a store or 
Uh, amongst people, oftentimes you'll see individuals, and maybe you're wearing one this morning, but wearing a cross attached to a chain around your neck. We need to remember that every time we see that symbol, what we're looking at is an instrument of death. Not some trite, little insignificant symbol like a fish on a bumper sticker. We need to remember that we're looking at an instrument of death. Every time we see that, it's a reminder, it's a call to come and die. To die to ourselves, to die to our sinful, selfish desires, and to live for Christ. To please Him, to honor Him. But the Christian life is a life of death. The Greek word, arneomai, which is translated deny. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Arneomai, deny. It has the idea of renouncing or refusing. In other words, Jesus was saying, those who wish to follow me must take up their cross, an instrument of death, and die to their own desires, and die to their sinful, selfish self. Is that true of us? Is that true of us? I mean, that's the foundation of the gospel. We've got to get that right before we talk about anything, any of the other particulars of what the Christian life is or what the Christian life looks like. The Christian life is a life of death. Paul uses similar language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is probably a familiar text to many of you, but he says, for the love of Christ controls me, or the love of Christ compels me, or the love of Christ constrains me. Why? Because we've concluded this, that one, speaking about Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. For what reason? He died for all. For what reason? The reason is this, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Write that down if you're taking notes. We forget that. We forget that in our parenting. We forget that in our marriage relationship. We forget that at work. We forget that in our leisure that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. You see, the language that Paul uses, let me bring your attention back now to Romans 12.1. The language that Paul uses in Romans 12.1, words like present, sacrifice, holy, pleasing, all those words they all stem from the original Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, when an offering was brought to the altar, it was consecrated to God, and therefore it was understood that it no longer, the offering no longer belonged to the one that brought it, but rather to the one that it was being offered to. I mean, that's implied when we make a sacrifice, right? I'm bringing a sacrifice to the altar, I'm laying it there, and what I'm saying is, is that the sacrifice no longer belongs to me, but to the one to whom I'm offering it. So it ought to be, so it is with our lives. We bring ourselves, boldly we approach the throne of grace, and we lay our lives down there, recognizing that in doing so, what I'm saying is, I'm no longer myself. I no longer live for myself, but unreservedly give myself over to him who died and was raised again. I want to look at the particulars of this phrase. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There's the phrase we're looking at. Let's break it down here. 
A on your outline, present your bodies, Paul says. Present your bodies. Paul represents us, believers, here in Romans 12.1. He represents us as priestly people who, in response to God's mercy, present our own bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, interesting. In the Old Testament, it was the priest who brought the sacrifice into the temple, right? What Paul's going to tell us in the New Testament is the mirror of that in the New Testament is this. You are the priest. A royal priesthood, right? You are the temple, are you not, of the Holy Spirit? But you are also the sacrifice. You're the priest, the temple, and a sacrifice. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter says, you yourselves, you, if you know Christ. He's speaking to you. You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. I mean, do we, do we reckon ourselves to be that? A holy priesthood? Strictly by His grace. Not because of me, but in spite of me. But we, in Christ, a holy priesthood. And he goes on and he says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wow. All of that in the Old Testament, preparatory for the New Testament, a big red arrow pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive plan for us. But in Christ, it is true that you now, in Christ, found safe in His blood, are a royal priesthood. You're also the temple. Lastly, you're the sacrifice. Do we live like that, though? Do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Do we live for Him who died and was raised again? Now, that word present there, it's an important word. It means to offer or to bring into one's presence. In other words, God's calling every believer to bring their bodies. Now, when we say bodies, I believe, and I'll show this to you in a few minutes, I believe Paul is talking about your literal flesh and bones body here in this text. The, the, very, the very bit of your body that takes up 12 square inches of fabric on the chair that you currently sit, that body. I think Paul is referring to here in our text. But God's calling every believer to bring their bodies into his presence that we might unceasingly offer them up to him as a spiritual sacrifice. Paul uses that word present several times. Let me, let me show it to you. It's an important word. Keep your finger there in Romans 12. Turn back six chapters to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look first at verse 13. Romans 6, verse 13. Paul says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, meaning the parts of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. Look three verses down at verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But when you present yourself to someone as a slave, you're presenting your body, your physical body, are you not? 
Look three verses down at verse 19. Paul says this. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, your physical body, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Boy, there's a good principle. A little lawlessness leads to a lot of lawlessness. Okay? We don't ever dabble in sin. Sin splatters and it gets big real quick. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. So, now present your members, your physical body, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Present yourself, your body. Now, let me ask you this question. Having looked at those texts, what does Paul mean when he says your bodies? Again, I think he's speaking about your, that which your flesh hangs on right now. Your physical flesh and bone body. Now, a cruise around respectable commentaries, respectable commentaries, not liberal commentaries, but a cruise around respectable commentaries would leave you divided on this point. Some would say that Paul is using bodies as figurative language, and he's basically what he's saying is this, give your all. God deserves your all, which is absolutely true, isn't it? My life, my all. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here, though that is a true statement. Again, I think Paul's talking about our physical bodies. You know, your body is so important to God that at the consummation of redemption, you'll get a resurrected body. So important is your body to God that at the consummation of redemption, we will get a resurrected body. You see, death isn't separation from the body eternally. We're going to get a new resurrected body and one in which no vestige of sin remains. Boy, we will join the heavenly throng around the throne of heaven and worship the Lamb with unceasing praise in a resurrected body without the faintest particle of remaining sin, without a vestige of of sin. That ought to bring great joy and delight and great longing to our hearts and souls. But your body is so important to God that in, the, in His redemptive plan, He's going to make it new. He's going to make it new. Paul said it like this to the church at Philippi. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies. And give us a body like his glorious body. And he'll do it by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. By the way, brothers and sisters, that's great power. That's power. In light of his mercy, we are to present our bodies to Christ. But how? How, Paul? Well, he tells us. Be on your outline. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. I mentioned this already, but not only are we as believers the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit resides, not only are we the royal priesthood, but we're also the sacrifice. You see, here again we see language from the Old Testament sacrificial system. But there's a major contrast between what Paul is saying here in our text and the preparatory Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, Paul says here that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices weren't a living sacrifice. 
But we are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We present a body that's alive from the dead if we know Christ. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live in this body, I no longer live for myself. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that true of us on any given day? Do we live in light of Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. Every time that we're tempted to sin, oh, how glorious would it be if Galatians 2.20 came to heart and came to mind. I'm tempted to look at that which I shouldn't look at. I'm tempted to go where I shouldn't go. I'm tempted to say what I shouldn't say. I'm I'm tempted to have a motive that is impure. But Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. And because of that, the life I now live in the flesh, I want to live by faith in the Son of God. I want to please Him. I want to honor Him who gave Himself for me. You see the word living, living sacrifice. That word living, it also carries with it the idea of permanence. In other words, we're to present our bodies as a continual or ongoing sacrifice. Here's the principle here. It's not on your outline, but all of life is worship. A living sacrifice. That being true, the principle is then all of life is worship. All of life. Even even the mundane things. 1 Corinthians 10.31, do you have memorized? So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do. I go get a haircut to the glory of God. I pump gas to the glory of God. I mean, why not? Right? All of life is worship. Woe to us if we think that worship or offering ourselves to God is confined to two hours in this room on Sunday mornings. Woe to us if we think that. All of life is worship. John Piper, I've probably mentioned this before, but John Piper once wrote an article entitled Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. It's a page and a half, and I commend it to your reading. Drinking orange juice to the glory of God. who made the fruit and the tree that bore it. There's two living sacrifices recorded in the Bible. You know what they are? Think for a minute. Two living sacrifices recording in the Bible. Recorded in the Bible. The first is Isaac, Genesis 22, willingly put himself on the altar and would have died there in obedience to God's will, but the Lord sent a ram in its place. That's a picture of mercy. It's a picture of grace, is it not? A substitute. That's, that's the gospel right there. God has sent a substitute to die in our place. We have no hope before a thrice holy God save God send a substitute to die in our place. And not just any substitute. It had to be a substitute that was spotless, without blemish, and without defect. Thank you, Jesus. But Isaac, he stepped on that altar there. God provides the ram in its place, a picture, a substitute again, a big crimson arrow in your Old Testament pointing thousands of years forward to God's redemptive plan unfolding in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he hung on a Roman cross as a broadcast anthem to a lost and dying world. I love you. 
enough that I'd give my life for you. If you'd come, all that Jesus Christ has secured for us is only effective for you if you come. If you come. Receive his lavish mercy. Receive his grace. Not because of you, but in spite of you. Not because of me, but in spite of me. Isaac, but Jesus himself, was a living sacrifice, was he not? The perfect living sacrifice. He gave himself up in obedience to the Father's will. And so God is calling each of us to daily present the members of our bodies as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship. And he he prescribes exactly how we're to do that. He uses the word holy. Holy. That's a lofty word, my friends. Holy. Simply, if we could just give it a human, very simple definition, we, we would say that holiness is this. Holiness means to be set apart from. You see, God has called His children to live in this world in such a way as sets His holiness on display. Boy, that's a high calling, is it not? God has called His children to live in this world in such a way as sets His holiness on display. We're called to be holy because He is holy. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that without holiness, no one will see God. See, holiness is a very important word. But oftentimes, let me bring a little bit of application here. Oftentimes, in our sin and in our rebellion, which we are all sinners and we are all rebellious, and in our sin and with our rebel nature, we ask this question. Though it may not be verbal, we ask this question. How close to the sin line can I get without stepping over? How close to the line can I get without sinning? Well, let me tell you this. If that's the question we're asking, and I'm guilty, but if that's the question we're asking, we've already stepped over it. We've sinned in asking the question. Because in asking the question, what we're really desiring is, how can I gratify myself? How can I live for myself? Instantaneous pleasure. It's a total denial of Galatians 3.20. I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live. But we do at times. We ask the question, how close to the sin line can I get without crossing it? Can I kiss a young lady with whom I'm not married? Is it okay to go to the bar if I'm not planning on drinking? Can I watch the movie that I know doesn't honor Christ if I fast forward through this part or that part? And I'm just, I mean, we could go on and on here. And my, my point isn't to step on toes, but yet my point is to step on toes because the Word of God does that, does it not? And if what is confronting us isn't stepping on our toes, then it's not the Word of God. Holiness doesn't ask the question, how close to the line can I get without stepping over it? James uses two words in James chapter 1 that, that give us a little bit of insight into the insidious nature of sin. Those two words are enticed and lured. Enticed and lured. James says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. I mean, here's the point. Sin is seductive. Remember earlier, lawlessness that leads to what? More lawlessness. Sin is seductive. It can be so easy to be lured and enticed. Let me, I mean, just to maybe light... Lighten it just a minute here for a second. No fish wakes up 
each morning and says to himself, I just can't wait to bite a piece of surgically sharpened stainless steel today. No fish says that. He's lured and enticed. It's the color. It's the way that it glimmers in the light. It looks attractive. And so he begins to follow. He begins to follow. Before long, he's bitten hook, line, and sinker. Such is the nature of sin. It's seductive, lured, and enticed. We ought to keep that in mind. We need to be careful that we don't put ourselves in compromising places where we can easily be tempted. God has saved us, if you know him, and he set you apart from the world. In the world, but yet other than the world. We're to look markedly different than the world in which we live. Holy as he is holy. Paul goes on and he says, acceptable to God. Not only holy, but acceptable to God. You can write that in D there. Acceptable. Acceptable has the idea of well-pleasing to God. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9? I'll use this all the time. You'll, you'll hear it. And I'll probably preface it by saying this is one of my favorite passages in God's Word. Because it is. But Paul says this. He says, whether we're at home or away from the body, we make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. Like that, that takes intentionality, right? I mean, when you go to the dartboard, you stand there with the dart, and you stand at the line, and you, you aim at the bullseye. It takes intentionality. So the question is, do we wake up each morning and intentionally think, I want my life to be pleasing to God? It is not just going to happen by default. It's going to happen by design. It's going to happen by intentionality. Acceptable means well-pleasing. Am I living a well-pleasing life to God with this body that he has given me? And I'm going to give you some practical application in a minute that maybe put some, no pun intended, flesh and bones on what I mean here uh, when I say present your bodies to God. But before I do that, let me, let me take you back for just a moment to what we used to use the members of our body for, Okay? Keep your finger there in Romans 12 and turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. What Paul does in Romans chapter 3 is he talks about the lawless life. He describes a life before grace and before mercy. And what Paul describes here in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, is true of every single one of us in our past if we know Christ. Look at what he says about the mind in verse 11. The mind, it didn't understand God. What about the heart? Look at verse 11. It didn't seek God. How about the throat in verse 13? It was an open grave. How about the tongue there in verse 13? It practiced deceit. How about the lips in verse 13, they spread the poison of venomous asps. How about the mouth? In verse 14, full of curses and bitterness. How about the feet? In verse 15, swift to shed blood. How about the eyes? In verse 18, they look away from God. But if you know Christ, that's not who you are anymore. 
Those members of your body that were once slaves to sin are now to be used as instruments of righteousness. The mind, the heart, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the eyes, the feet, they're now to be used as instruments of righteousness. I'm to use this very body. Yes, I'm to give my all, but Paul is saying the body, your body, use those members as instruments of righteousness to glorify God. To glorify God. Now, let me bring some practical application here. Pleasing God with our bodies includes this. What you put on it. What you put on your body. I would ask you this question. And I would ask myself the question. Does what you clothe your body with, is it congruent with, Does it reflect the very Christ that your lips profess? Does what you clothe your body with, modest, is it honoring to Christ? Ladies, does what you wear frame your face or your body? And that is not a struggle that is confined to the female gender, by the way. But is what we put on this body, is it congruent with, Does it agree with, does it reflect the very Jesus Christ that our lips profess? How about what we put in our bodies? Not just what we put on it, but what we put in it. You know, words like moderation, self-control, confessions of a pastor. The Nutella jar is hard for me. But it goes far beyond the Nutella jar, does it not? We need to be mindful of what we put in our body. Is it honoring to God? Is what I'm putting in my, in my body going to help me or hinder me from honoring Christ? How about where you take your body? What you put on it, what you put in it, how about where you take it? There are places in this world that I don't want to be found when Jesus Christ returns. Now, having said that, it's it's not as if Jesus Christ will just find out where we are when he returns. He already knows, does he not? He knows our thoughts from afar. He, He knows our very words before they roll out of our mouth. He knows our coming and our going. This is the Hebrews 4.13. That we're we're when we think we're all alone, we're never all alone. We need to always remember that. We're always laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But there are places in this world that I don't want to let these feet take me because I want to honor Christ with where I take my body. How about your mind? Your mind. What you think about. When you think you're all alone, remember that you're never all alone. What bounces around between your two ears and for me at times, isn't much. But what bounces around in that mind of ours is vitally important. It's vitally important. And Paul said this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, listen to these words, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if there is anything that is worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, pause. 
Think about the last 168 hours of the week. Have the thoughts and intentions of my heart and mind been things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are noble, things that are admirable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise, things that are pure? That's challenging. We're to honor Christ with our mind. How about your eyes? What will you look at? Guys, men, Husbands, young men, teenagers, college students. What about your eyes? Lured and enticed. Now, here's what we need to remember. Those words don't mean that I don't have any personal responsibility. Can't just say, well, I was lured and I was enticed. It's not my fault. No, if we know Christ, we were lured and enticed and you bit intentionally. And so do I. Job said this in Job 31.1. I would commend it to every man's memory in here. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. But it's broader than that. We ought to make a covenant with our eyes not to look lustfully at anything. That's the definition of covetousness, is it not? And that sin, by the way, looking lustfully, that's not a sin that's confined to the male gender. Your eyes. How about your mouth? What you allow to come out of it. James said it this way. He said, so the tongue, it's a very small member, but it boasts of great things. How a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he goes on and he says, and the tongue is that fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members. Members, Paul's using physical flesh and blood language here, is he not? Our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. How about this, Ephesians 4.29? It won't be too long before we're here, but let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths except that which is useful for building others up. Here's the principle, friends. There are no neutral words. In everything that we say to another human being, we're either always building up or always tearing down. Words are never neutral. How are we using our words? How are we using our words? Your mouth. How about your ears? What will you listen to? What will you listen to? Well, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. You know where things that you hear go? Into your mind. Do you know where things in your mind oftentimes go? They either flesh themselves out in your actions or in your words. Well, be careful, little ears, what you hear. How about your hands? What will you use them for? You know, these, these hands right here, ten, ten fingers, they can be used as instruments of unrighteousness to please me, to please you in some way, or they can be used as instruments of righteousness. How about this? I'll just ask this question. Are they being used to serve? Are they being used to serve? Idle hands will get every one of us in trouble. How about your feet? Where will they take you? Writer of Proverbs had some 
sobering words for us. He says, ponder the path of your feet. In other words, think about, give thought to, be mindful of the path of your feet, he says. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left or turn your foot away. Your feet, where will they take you? Where will they take you? Let's bring it to a close here this morning. Number three on your outline is this. We offer ourselves, namely our bodies, to God because to do so is reasonable. That's the key word there, reasonable, in light of the mercy that he has lavished on us. Because to do so is reasonable in light of the mercy that he has lavished on us. The word translated spiritual in your Bible there. Paul says, which is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual in your Bible, it's the Greek word logikos. You can hear our English word logical in that word there. Which is your spiritual, or translation, which is your logical worship. It goes without saying, the presentation of our bodies, these members of this body, as a living sacrifice is most certainly spiritual worship. But it's also logical It's also reasonable worship. Reasonable implies that God isn't asking too much of you. You know, oftentimes we think, well, why can't I go here? Or why can't I watch this? Or why can't I do that? Oftentimes we probably hear it more in our children than we voice, but we ask the same questions. And really the question we're asking is, how close to the line can I get without sinning? And what we need to remember is that what God is asking of us is reasonable. It's reasonable. The way he's asking you to use the very body that he's given you is reasonable. Not only is Paul highlighting the rationality, I think, of presenting the members of our body as a living sacrifice, but I think it's very possible that he's drawing a contrast here in the final phrase of verse 1. Again, the phrase we're looking at is, which is your spiritual worship. And I think Paul is potentially drawing a contrast here. Here's what I mean by that. Rationality and reason both have to do with what part of your body? Your mind, right? Rationality and reason both have to do with your mind, which the word spiritual, which is your spiritual worship, can be translated reasonable worship. Reason has to do with your mind. And I think what Paul might be doing here is making the contrast between that which is merely mechanical and that which is intentional. In other words, he's saying that to offer the members of your body to Christ as a living sacrifice, acceptable to him, pleasing to him, holy in his sight, it's reasonable, and that ought not just be, actually it can't be, it won't happen mechanically. It must happen intentionally. In other words, it takes forethought. Here's the principle. Plan your obedience. Plan your obedience. If you don't, more times than not, we won't be obedient. Plan your obedience in advance. We want to honor him. John Murray, one of my favorite writers and commentators, says this. He says, a great many of our bodily functions don't enlist volition on our part. Think about your heartbeat, for instance. It doesn't enlist any volition. It's not intentional on your part. It just happens by God's grace and his wonderful, marvelous design. He goes on and he says, but the worshipful service that Paul speaks about here requires intelligent volition. 
intentionality. You see, in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts penned these words, Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Yes, but more specifically, the members of the body that God has given you. Your eyes, your ears, your feet, what you'll adorn it with, what you put in it, your mouth, what you'll say, what you think about. Are they honoring Christ? God wants your body to be used in worship and honor of Him. In light of the riches of God's free grace and mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, continually holy, set apart, and acceptable, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable or logical, God's not asking too much of you, act of worship. God, give us the grace to make it so. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and grace in our lives. And it is the grace of God that has appeared that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we eagerly await the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the grace to make this text so in our lives that we might honor and praise you. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege this morning of partaking in communion. And these elements here, this bread and this juice, are symbols. They're a reminder of, just like the cross is a symbol of death, the bread being a symbol of Jesus' body broken for us, and the juice being a symbol of his blood poured out for us. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And it is that holy and acceptable sacrifice made on our behalf that gives us the privilege of entering into his presence and being called holy and acceptable. Let's remember that as we partake of the elements this morning. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, we encourage you to partake of communion freely. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you to not partake this morning and instead, right where you are, repent of your sins, turn to Christ, cast yourself on his matchless mercy and grace. Today is the day of salvation.